Hey, it's Brian Curtis from The Ringer, and I want to tell you about the Press Box podcast. The Press Box is a podcast for anybody who likes news, whether it's about sports or politics or pop culture, and wants to understand how that news really gets made. We have new shows every Monday and Thursday. We have long interviews with everyone from John Krakauer to Joe Buck. Your social media feeds are bursting with information every day. Let us help you sort it out. Join us on the Press Box. Welcome back, everybody. Um, very, very, very um, looking forward to this talk today. It's one of those. Uh, this is. It's one of those tough ones. It's like I call it tough medicine talks, but it's a uh, really fascinating. And I heard about this book a while ago, and then I was reminded recently about it. And I'm, you know, I love history, but finding about your own history in surprising ways is also very important. And this book kind of does that in very stark ways, too. The book's called Madness, uh, Race and Insanity in a Jim Crow Asylum. And I'm very happy to have her Emmy and Peabody Award winning NBC News reporter, Antonia Hilton, the author of the book. Welcome to Black on the Air, Antonia. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to have you. And this is such a tough book, an important book, it feels like. You know, this is one of those... Man, you know what? I'm fascinated by how many cracks there are out there, holes that we just don't know about or that have been forgotten. They've just things that have fallen through the cracks, I should say. You know, I was looking at a, a special on Ida B. Wells uh, the other day, and even in her lifetime, she had fallen through the cracks, which is why she started writing her autobiography. She's like, people have already forgotten me. And it was like 20 years after the fact. I'm like, Jesus Christ, things fall through so fast. What 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 led you to this particular story and this book? You know, I think there are sort of two origin stories mm-hmm. for me. So the most obvious one is I was just a teenager in college. I was a freshman yeah. and I was you know, trying out different courses, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I stumbled into a class on the history of psychiatry. Mm. And I think if you had asked me at that time, as just a 17, 18 year old, I would have told you stumbled. I I would have called it a mistake. But now that I'm a bit older and I've done this work for longer, I, and I can kind of see the arc of my life and my different influences. Mm -hmm. I then realized that I think coming from a family that refused to talk about mental health, refused to acknowledge psychiatry, refused to call therapists when things happen. Right. I mean, the kind of parents and grandparents who would say things like, go to your room and pray about it. Exactly, Um, yeah. That probably... That's why you need more Jesus in you, because you got them thoughts. Exactly. Um, And, uh, you know, you solve your problems on Sundays, and I guess you just suffer the other six days of the week. The rest of the week, exactly. And, And so, you know, I think, I don't think I could have articulated it at that time. But Mm. now I think that I became a journalist and I became the kind of question asker I am because it was so hard to have those conversations. And I felt so shut out of Mm. a lot of the adult life in my family. Me and my six siblings, come from a very big family. We could tell there were secrets. We could tell there were family members who were sent to places to get help or who were struggling with alcoholism or anxiety, Mm. right? But you couldn't get people to acknowledge it. And I think in a weird way, they thought that by just pretending things weren't there, that they could protect us from ever experiencing those things. But it was actually the opposite. Um, the more you sense there's something there and, and that you're not getting honest answers, I think the more anxiety you feel. So, yeah. so I went looking for answers. And so I stumbled into this work. Uh, and the weird thing about studying the history of psychiatry in this country is that it's almost entirely taught to you from the perspective of white people, white doctors, white patients. And so if you come from a family like mine, know immediately something's wrong with that because you're, you're like, okay, I know some people in my family have experienced this, but I can't find anyone like us in in the books. So I just went looking for it. Yeah. And it's like, you know, something sound racist, but it's really cultural. Like there is a difference especially in this time period between white problems and black problems. There just was a difference. You know, it's not a, it's not a racial, a racist statement so much as it's a cultural thing. Uh, 
And especially when you go into the history of how Crownsville, Crownsville was the name of this asylum that you that you talk about. Tell us about Crownsville and how it got started. What was what was it like back then? Like what was what was the well, these are a lot of questions I'm throwing at you. But uh let's start with the place first. And also, if you were black and had mental problems, what happened to you? That question alone is a big question. Yes, but I know. So, so take it in, in what any order. Let's take that last one first, because let's talk about yeah. where we're about 1909 when it started the construction on this, or 1910. They come up with the idea around 1909, 1909. and the construction begins in 1911. 1911. Okay, that's its own little story too. I want to get to that, but let's talk about the state of black mental problems, or however we want to talk about it, and what it was like in the world there and how it was dealt with. Well, when you look back in newspapers, medical journals, letters from politicians and important people at that time, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what you find is a lot of white people complaining about black people suffering. Mm -hmm. Uh, And some of it came from a place of sympathy um, from noticing Mm -hmm. that a lot of them were poor, that a lot of them seemed to be emotionally (laughs) unwell uh, and that they were worried about these things. Um, For many others, it came from a place of annoyance, kind of like, why can't they seem to get with the program sort of thing? Um, And this is all in the years after emancipation. You know, at this time in the early 1900s, you're kind of looking at the first generation of people completely removed from slavery, or or there are elders around who still were enslaved themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think being black, you kind of, when I was looking at these records, I'm like, wait, what do you mean? Why are you so confused? about why black people are suffering. I mean, they barely escaped this system. Uh, They haven't gotten a whole lot of support. (laughs) And so obviously there's still the trauma, um, both physically and and, and, and physical and mental trauma from that experience. And you would think there'd be more acknowledgement of that in the medical and sort of social records of the time. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it is white people actually being stumped about this. And one of the prevailing theories they come up with is that, oh, Black people's minds are kind of unraveling because they no longer have masters to take care of them. Um, The good old days are kind of gone. And this is an attitude that's not um, held by, you know, just a couple random people in different corners of the country. It's a a pervasive attitude. It's a published and debated attitude. It's something that informed the beliefs and attitudes of doctors who founded modern psychiatry in this country names are on buildings and roads not just in maryland where my book takes place but all over the country i mean people who created things like the american psychological association right so what they believed and how they felt toward black people informed everything about the development of hospitals about the way they doled out health care And then the way they interacted with black patients once they got there. So in this time, if you're black and you realize you're struggling, you try to go to a place like this, you're really met with one of two things. Either you're, you're kind of shit out of luck, frankly, and Mm -hmm. you are told there is no healthcare, your family can't afford it. And there is no one to help you get real treatment at that time. Mm -hmm. Or you're brought to a segregated asylum or a segregated ward in an asylum. So Mm. it's kind of one or the other. And you were treated by people who were often very openly uh, bigoted, very open about the fact that they saw you as less than human. Which was the normal way to see Blacks. It wasn't like that was abnormal. Yeah. Not abnormal at all. Um, In fact, from what I found in the records, so I spent the last 10 years gathering oral history in the community because mm-hmm. there are elders who were who are still living in Maryland in their late 90s who were present still for the early period of the, the hospital's operations. And then going through um, decades of letters, records, hospital reports, um, you know, data, uh, patient files. And what you find is that in those early years, the majority of the people on the staff, I mean, it's an all-white staff and a Black mm-hmm. patient population, the majority of the people who came to work there Uh, openly disliked, didn't want to listen to, and even were embarrassed to be working with the patients that they had. Um, And so for me, that that kind of immediately answered some questions when I thought back to my own personal experience of having grandparents. I mean, my mom was born in Baltimore, actually. And and, uh, I I think about her mother, who was so anti-psychiatry, so Mm. against uh, therapy, 
uh, and how she grew up down the road from this institution. Um, and things kind of start falling into place. They start making sense when you realize, oh, they might hate this because it never was for them in the first place. And maybe that's not so irrational after all. No, no. And I'm, you know, I think it's important for people to know like when we talk about institutional racism, what that means, a lot of people just think it means government policies. But it, a lot of it is, it, and it's so hard to get in the time machine and go back to how it was back then. But there was just a worldview about the subhuman nature of blacks, you know, at the time that they just weren't the same as white people, you know, and it was so given. And this term, um, I'll try to pronounce it. Drapetomania is that the term? Yeah. Uh, so this is a. So we're not talking about redneck sheriffs in Alabama, you guys. We're talking about uh, philosophers, psychiatrists, you know, psychologists, you know, well-respected people in their fields coming up with clinical terms, not slang, but clinical terms that that get into books that people are taught about these things. So I, I want to just point out that distinction. And uh, I had never even heard of this term before. And you know, one of the definitions is the irrational and unnatural desire of a slave seeking freedom. That's crazy. <laughs> and you have to laugh to keep from exploding. <laughs> yes. The thought that, you know, if they had stayed slaves, they probably wouldn't be going through all this. Exactly. And what they're saying with that is emancipation has been a mistake. We are not responsible at all for this community's continued suffering for their pain. And when you are treating them, you know, in the this is someone who works with patients. It was writing right. from the clinical perspective. So then bringing a patient back to health, restoring the natural order requires what? Physical labor, the antebellum yeah. social order, uh, subjugation. That's mm -hmm. what they're saying is healthy for Black people. Bringing it back to the natural order yeah. that, that this definition implies, right? That exactly. that's the proper place. Now, Crownsville, uh, was this started as like from a um, way to help Blacks? Was it uh, from a point of view where there was compassion? Like, because I know a lot of things start off like that, but then it becomes what it is. Uh, what, what was the thinking behind Crownsville? Like, who started this? You know, compassion, it's a, it's a tough word because I think you can yeah. get some of what they say and see glimmers of compassion. Con contemporary compassion, I guess. Yeah. Right. And mm -hmm. so you see some of the officials write in these lunacy reports that uh, Maryland would publish. Mm -hmm. And uh, they describe poor Negroes um, being treated like the beasts of the field. Um, and you get the sense that, they, that they're not comfortable with this, that they're outraged mm -hmm. that black people who are mentally suffering are being chained in the basements of buildings. They're being left in stables with um, uh, farm animals, um, that they're not able to get treatment because they're barred from white facilities and mm -hmm. that they must feel some sense of in, you know, injustice about this. Mm -hmm. But then these same people, when they're coming up with the solution and they then try to take action to serve that patient population. These are the same people who then make a very curious uh, decision about Crownsville. So they, they come up with this idea to build the place. They specifically want to segregate it, separate black patients from white patients, um, but they don't really want to pay for it. So mm. they then come up with a brilliant idea to force the patients to build the hospital for themselves. This is crazy. <laughs> and, and doesn't that kind of just tell you everything? I mean, it reminds me of the thing you were just saying about Ida, right? It's like, yeah. we can't even access these things, can't have our stories told without doing all the work for ourselves up front. Right, right, and right, right. We can't get mental health care. Um, we can't get rest. We can't get access to a facility unless we're going to do the backbreaking work out in the cold of mm -hmm. literally building it brick by brick. So that's what this colony of patients um is forced to do so they first start with 12 men in the forest and then mm. every week they bring in a bunch of new guys some of them are as young as 10 and 12 years old so children are present for this as well they are not you know carrying some you know water and and helping out in an assistant role they are clearing forests moving railway tracks they're constructing a foundation. They are building massive brick structures that stand to this day in Maryland. If you wow. are 
uh, ever crazy. near Anne Arundel County, you can drive down Crownsville Road and see them. They're right there on the street. People who grow up in this area grow up seeing these buildings, but not knowing who built them. The patients did. And mm. that is something no other group of patients was ever forced to do. And, and their pay was admittance into the facility. <laughs> right? Yeah, that was the and, pay. and more work. More right, work. And more work. So they finished yeah. constructing the hospital and they're marched into this institution that they just built. Wow. But then they have to run a massive plantation-like farm. They mm-hmm. have to create baskets and rugs to sell to offset the cost of their own care, not to create their own income. And it's not a jobs program where they're you know, getting apprenticeships and getting integrated back into the community. I mean, they are right. literally creating goods just to cover the cost of their own food and survival in this institution. And working at a level and to an extent that no other group of patients in Maryland are being asked to do. And so there's this recreation of those good old, good old days. Everything we just talked about, about doctors who came up with terms like drapetomania and this idea that what's healthy and good for Black people is just a whole lot of work, conveniently. So there wasn't any real clinical treatment outside of just labor therapy. Well, there are... there. There were these early practices that, you know, we know now weren't doing a whole lot. Um, mm-hmm. They use things like hydrotherapy, um, which could be great, according to the record, and could be torture. So in some cases, it was like getting put in a hot tub for a few minutes by mm-hmm. uh, for a patient, and, and they, they would like that. Um, in other cases, staff at Crownsville and other institutions would submerge a patient in a very hot or very, very ice cold bath for about three days at a time. Um, At that point, that's torture. Uh, They would strap them into chairs. They would leave them in cells, sort of seclusion cells. You would think of a a prison cell um, uh, for days at a time. And we didn't have much in the way of medication. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the majority of what a patient's life and and treatment would have been like at the time would have just been a whole lot of work. And what was the determination for admittance to that place? And who... Who determined that? Like, who decided that this person needed to go to Crownsville? Well, kind of a network of people. I mean, mm-hmm. there are there's the admissions staff who would work at the institution, who at that time were all white. Um, some of the people who worked on that team wouldn't have even had a college degree. Some of them couldn't read or write. Um, I mean, wow. even a high school degree, actually, I should say. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, they are making these decisions sort of just by sight um, and by mm-hmm. their own beliefs about the people who are who come to them. Patients could be sent by family members, people who could no longer take care of them. In the case of a lot of the children that came to Crownsville, it was Mm -hmm. that their parents had passed away or could no longer afford their care. And they felt they had nowhere else to bring them, but to kind of treat the asylum almost like an orphanage. Um, And then there were people rounded up by police officers at night um, who would get in trouble for, you know, petty thefts, like stealing from a a corner or a grocery store. Mm -hmm. Um, And they would be brought to Crownsville, um, even if they didn't have uh, any kind of real diagnosis. And I, I could see that in the records. So in those early years, it's really hard to find information about patients' actual diagnoses. Uh, mm-hmm. It's hard to find anything about their interior lives. Rarely did doctors care to write notes about what they were experiencing, what memories they had, what, what was bothering or hurting them. But there are lots of records about how many rugs they produced each month (laughs) and um, how many uh, wares they were able to sell or competitions uh, that they that they were able to go to. And the the hospital was able to get prizes or money from Um, Mm -hmm. because many of the patients were so talented in basket weaving and in other skills um, that they were able to compete against other institutions with with the goods that Crownsville patients had made. Um, And so it's a lot easier to find out about what they could produce than who, anything about who they were. And it seemed like there were just a real mix of different types of people, especially putting criminals or with what people might consider criminally insane, which I don't know how you make that distinction in those days, you know, but also that would put, you know, that could compromise just someone that isn't that, you know, in a place like that. You know, sounds very dangerous to me. Yeah. And I mean, on the cover of the book, you can see a a, a boy, a, a young boy right there out on an adult ward. Right. And that's what was happening there. People were all mixed together. There were in some cases hundreds of people sleeping in spaces designed for, say, 60 or 80 people. And so they would be two to a bed, head to foot, 
children sleeping with grown men. Um, mm. and, and, you know, this is not one of these things where, oh, back then we didn't know that was wrong. There, there were right, doctors right, writing right. at the time. People were right. writing at the time, this isn't appropriate. We need more funding. We need, what are we going to do for the children? How come we haven't set up a school for these kids? They're not learning anything. They were, they would write about this. And there were family members of patients writing to black owned newspapers, begging them to investigate, begging them to do something about it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so people knew it was wrong even then, but the hospital couldn't get the resources or the support to do anything about it. Yeah. And some of it's sad too, where you think about families that, you know, if someone was like that in their family, which, you know, we have different diagnoses for today, you know, they were maybe happy to have them go off to a facility where they weren't responsible for them. You know, it was less, one less mouth to feed and that sort of thing. So you have those kind of stories too, right? Yeah. I, I, come from a family like that. Um, my yeah. great grandfather was sent to an institution, a segregated ward of an institution in Michigan. It, it was because my family didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't even know how to talk about it. Um, and to this day, my dad and his, uh, brother and, and his cousins, they still don't really know how to talk about it. Yeah. Um, especially because they were so young as it was happening. And that was the case for Americans of, of, of every background at the time. There, there was so sure. much stigma. I mean, we still have stigma, but at a level that I think some of us wouldn't even be able to comprehend now the amount of shame that could come mm-hmm. down on a family for admitting that someone was unwell in that way. Mm-hmm. But for black people, there's sort of this additional layer of shame of, yeah. because you're kind of always in any context seemingly representing your entire race, mm-hmm. your failures, um, and your family's, uh, embarrassments take on this immensity, um, and this weight that impacts, of course, the patient and the person who is, who is suffering and experiencing that, but kind of reconfigures and reshapes your entire family as they are suffering through that experience with you. And my dad's family was absolutely one of those that just was, uh, completely panicked didn't know what else you do. And so we have to send them to this place. Yeah. Uh, it is uh, touching how, yeah, your personal story in here is very moving too. Tell us about Maynard. Was that your father's, what relation to him was to your father? And, and That's my dad's first cousin. His, that's his, his first cousin, yeah. Yeah, his, and he's a little older than him. So my dad looked up to him for most of his adolescence. Because I was really moved by how you talked about that. I mean, the book you said, when you swallow your pain, it never does digest, you know, which I thought was very probably and how it can manifest like in diabetes, alcoholism, depression, things like that. And it seems like mental illness in blacks is part of a result of this racial indigestion, I'll call it, you know. Um, it's a good word for it. <laughs> yeah, racial indigestion. Yeah, I th- thank you. I thought that was good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but tell us about Maynard and how your process of even finding that out and going, you know, kind of, chipping away at finding out that story is interesting too. Yeah. Maynard was my dad's big cousin. Uh, he grew up in Mobile, Alabama. My dad was growing up in Detroit and Maynard would come to visit a lot. Uh, he wanted to be a lawyer just like my dad's dad. And mm-hmm. so he came um, several times, but one summer that really stands out to my father when he was just 11 years old, Maynard came to live with them for several months in Detroit and kind of followed my grandpa everywhere. Um, my grandpa was working as a civil rights attorney and, and helping a lot of families in the area and wow. made her basically acted as his assistant, his clerk. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad's memories of Maynard are that he would get up in the morning and put on really cool suits. Mm-hmm. He was so stylish and cool um, that he listened to the last poets, the forefathers of hip hop that yeah. he was really always um, interested, even with the youngest members of the family in debating everything about politics and civil rights. He would talk Mm -hmm. about Richard Nixon in front of my dad. He would uh, talk about, uh, you know, uh, conflicts and riots in Detroit. I mean, he was just open to, he he didn't think any of that was off the table or that there was a separation between the the older cousins and the the adults of the family and the kids. He thought kind of everybody needed that education. Um, He liked to play lacrosse and he liked to joke that it's the best sport for black people to play because they could get the opportunity to whack white people in the head. That's and hilarious. Um, 
I mean, he's not wrong. <laughs> I had never thought about it that way. I was like, oh, I never tried lacrosse, but maybe I should have. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> but, you know, those are things that stand out in my dad's memory. Just mm-hmm. really this, this cousin leaving an impression on him about what it meant to be unapologetically black. And to mm. um, and to just be insistent and proud uh, about who you are and your success and your future, mm-hmm. um, and to not operate from a place of shame or fear. And then, right. as Maynard gets older, it becomes clearer to my dad, to Maynard's brother Kendall, um, and some other people in the family that he's becoming more anxious, more morbid. Mm. Um, he goes to the University of Alabama not long after George Wallace had put on his big show there to keep black people from being able to enroll. Mm -hmm. And my family starts hearing all these rumors about the KKK swarming and watching the campus. At the same time, Maynard is becoming really paranoid. And it's Mm -hmm. very hard to understand, is it mental illness? Is he seeing and hearing things? In those types of moments, you never know if a person is cracking or what's really happening in there. And so something, there's definitely a change in him at this time, right? There's a change at that time, mm-hmm. but when I talked to my dad and to Kendall, who's Maynard's younger brother, who's still alive, Kendall and my dad felt like, you know, when I, when we think back to it, it's so hard to parse it all apart because mm-hmm. you're just, so many black men were paranoid at that time in right. the 60s and 70s. So many of people were talking about the man, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and we now know that at the highest level of our country's government, they were monitoring black people, black leaders, black gatherings and, and political thought. And so this idea that someone was watching you was substantiated in many ways. And so it was hard from a distance while your cousin is in college to figure out, you know, what's fact and fiction, what's right and wrong, what's sick and, and well. And so it becomes very clear as he eventually, um, is diagnosed with schizophrenia and Mm. he starts to suffer um, and and to hear and to see uh, hallucinations. And my dad was still so young at the time. And so he didn't understand why it was so hard for the family to get him healthcare. Mm -hmm. Um, But it all kind of comes full circle. One day when my dad gets a call um, and or his family gets a call in their home in Detroit and they find out that Maynard had a, a mental health crisis, a sort of episode publicly on the federal building steps in Mobile. Mm. Um, and that within seconds of finding him, a white police officer shot and killed him. Mm. Nobody in the family was there to witness his final moments, to verify what the officer claimed Maynard did that day, which is that he mm. claimed Maynard had run at him with a gun. Um and he died just a few hours later in the hospital and his death changed my whole family. Um, mm-hmm. You know, my dad immediately lost this mentor and best friend. Um, this person who had tried to bring him in and introduce him to new ways of looking at the world and to loving being black. Um, and that person was gone. Uh, my grandparents According to my father, really didn't know how to handle it and talk about it. And Mm -hmm. they had also just, you know, not that long before lost my great grandfather, um, who had also suffered mentally after being harassed by the KKK in Georgia, which is why my family ended up in Detroit in the first place. It felt like just this one, one tragedy after another piling up on them. And then a year after Maynard passes away, Maynard's father dies of what people in my family describe as a broken heart. And so at that right. point, it just becomes impossible to make sense of it all. Um, and so for a really long time, and certainly for all of my childhood, Maynard was like this ghost, um, this person that I knew existed, but nobody knew how to acknowledge or talk about. People hid his family photos. So mm. my family has photos wow. and artwork all over the place, but you, you, you couldn't find Maynard anywhere. There was kind of shame about him, it sounds like, right? Or just denial, maybe, or... Denial might be a better yeah. word. I think it's um, fear of even just looking in his face and mm. trying to understand what had happened to him. I think there was also shame, not just about 
oh, the shame of having a loved one with mental illness, but also the shame of, of feeling like you failed a loved one with mental illness. And wow. I think that I think some of that still lingers in my family. And so Maynard becomes one of those stories that I was talking about, those family stories where me and my siblings know something is there. We mm -hmm. know something existed. We see when it comes up briefly that there's pain on people's faces. Um, but we're never really invited into the world and we know how Maynard dies, but we never get to hear about how he lived. Yeah. And that really changed all of us. Um, and so I felt like I should talk about some of that in the book because, um, you know, beyond just introducing people to this history that while difficult is, is also, I, I, I hope it reminds people too, that, you know, if you come from a family where there's been this kind of suffering or if you yourself are, are struggling in this way, mm -hmm. you are, absolutely not alone you actually come from a long history and and generations of people who tried to access this care and not mm -hmm. always been able to um and if you come from a family that's struggling to talk about these things perhaps seeing this history up close will give you a little patience and compassion because you can see just um how much it's not our fault <laughs> and so i felt like if i share a little bit of the personal story maybe I can make the reader feel more comfortable, more confident talking about their own stories or mm. going to their own family members and saying, let's finally talk about this because yeah. that's what, that's what the research of this book did for me. It made me push my family to talk. That's amazing. You know, when you talked about when you took that class, it almost feels like there were, you had this calling, you know, to tell this story about your family as well as this other stories, like this dual calling almost, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I didn't know it and I couldn't have articulated it, but I did feel very drawn to this work. Yeah. Um, and even after graduating and starting to pursue my career in journalism and traveling all over the place and dealing with the demands of daily news. And by the time I graduated from college, you know, Trump was running for the, president <laughs> for the first time and everything just was so upside down. Um, and so I think it could have been really easy for me to have forgotten about my love of this, my, my discovery of this hospital and, and kind of just, push it to the side. Um, but I just kept coming back to it all the time. I kept building new relationships with people in the community, uh, in particular, that like just this amazing group of black families and healthcare heroes in Maryland who come into this place partway through yeah. the book and they really step up and start to save patients' lives and, and reform the institution. And I was just so drawn to them. Um, and I think kind of shocked and surprised that no one had told their story before. No one had given them their flowers. Yeah. And so I, I just couldn't really, I couldn't let it go for all the personal reasons, but also just, I think, because of what the, the reporting started to represent to me. Yeah. One of the things I actually wanted to read a little bit of this because it's so powerful, if, if I may, um, Please. from your book. I don't do this all the time, but sometimes when it's this powerful and I'll tell everybody what it is. So um, many people think that Jim Crow was mainly segregation. You know, that you couldn't eat in this restaurant, you know, if you're like, you couldn't use this bathroom, you couldn't use this water faucet. And certainly separation was a part of it. But there is a different part of it that is under talked about. And it's about how blacks were also terrorized, you know, and how terror was used against us, which, you know, leads to the talk about mental illness as a result of this terrorization, you know. But lynching, which is, I think, an under-talked about thing in this country because it's so painful and so graphic and everything. I mean, whew, you you talk about it in your book and tell us some of these stories. And I'm amazed at the research in it. But I wanted to share this with people because I think people need to hear these things um, directly sometimes. And I will warn people, this is very graphic, but it's very real, just so you get a sense Um as a black man, and this is about Matthew Williams, who had a, a disability that we can say these days, um, I'm not sure where you would uh, define him, but right, I'll, I'll just say this part. As a black man with a cognitive disability, Matthew Williams never stood a chance. Williams arrived at Pen Peninsula General Hospital, semi-conscious and bleeding out from his wounds. You tell the story of how this happened, which um, uh, we won't go over now, but the hospital staff quickly formed a judgment Williams, already labeled as strange, was restrained in a straitjacket to keep from being violent. A group entered the hospital demanding that Williams be turned over to them. The men threw Williams covered in bandages and wearing a straitjacket out of a hospital window and into the crowd of 3 
hundred people waiting below. A lot of people don't know how mob <laughs> violence really happened. This is how it happened. As men carried Williams to the courthouse, the crowd swelled until a mob of some thousand people surrounded Williams. He was pushed, stabbed with an ice pick, and dragged by a truck. County Sheriff Phillips attempted to prevent the lynching, but the mob pushed him to the side. At 8 p.m., the crowd fixed up a noose and found a branch 20 feet above the ground. They tied an unconscious Williams by the neck and began to lift him up, then drop him down over and over again. The mob allowed Williams to hang lifelessly for 20 minutes as they mocked the victim and took parts of his anatomy as souvenirs. After Williams thumped to the ground one last time, the crowd followed the body as it was dragged behind a truck once again, this time toward the black section of Salisbury off Poplar Hill Avenue. Finally, after about an hour of further torture of his corpse, William was tied to a lamppost, doused in gasoline and oil, and set on fire in front of a store so, as the papers reported, all the colored people could see him. According to local Black reporters with the Afro, Black residents fleeing in terror could smell Matthew Williams' burning flesh in the air. The mob removed Williams' fingers and toes and threw them on the porches of Black homes, shouting that they should make nigger sandwiches. Whew. Now, that's what it was like back then, everybody. That's what it was like. Um, this type of reporting is a definition of bravery, what you're doing here and telling you, it's we're both emotional, you know, just hearing that I can see it in your face too. It's full. Cause these, these are real people. It's real story of, of, you know, there's so many different things that are caused by these actions. My sister and I had this conversation a couple of years ago and she was talking about how many of the problems, especially like alcohol and lism and, you know, broken families and some of these things are a result of being terrorized for so long, too. Speak about why it was important for you to include, that's just one passage, but there are some others in the book. Why is that important for people to hear that? For a few reasons. I mean, you sort of touched on this, but Black people were living in a real horror show at the time. And this idea that they had fears of what people might do to them in many ways, um, it was completely logical to stay up at night wondering what might happen to you, to yeah. think twice before you walked through a certain neighborhood, to be worried that you can't make any kind of mistake, and to send any family member of yours who seemed a little outside of the box to a place like Crownsville. Because for many of those families, and I write about this, Matthew Williams' life comes to an end in that particular part of Maryland because he's in such a rural area so far from a place like Crownsville that when you had children who were mentally different or suffering at the time, mm -hmm. if they weren't going to end up at a place like Crownsville, they were very likely going to make social mistakes that led them to be treated by a mob like that. The interpretation of white people at the time for black behavior <laughs> or those types of things. If you were an autistic child and looked a, a white person in the eyes or, or did some kind of behavior, good or luck. Or just spoke to them in a store. Right, just spoke to them in the store, right. Yeah, I, I write mm -hmm. at one point in the, in the book about a, a patient who ends up at Crownsville for decades, who's discovered by one of the administrative workers in the 60s when she gets there around 1967, 68. And she discovers that there's a patient at Crownsville who has been there for decades for having committed the crime of cutting a white person off in traffic. I'm quiet because it's hard yeah. to find. I have no words. Right. Um, you know, I, I wanted to, um, I guess, deal with that history to mm -hmm. acknowledge the role that terrorism played in all of this, mm -hmm. because it absolutely has a connection to health outcomes in the past and in the present. Uh, this area, the Eastern Shore, which is where that lynching took place, mm -hmm. this is an area that is still one of the most black parts of Maryland. Uh, generations of, of black families still have connections there. Their grandparents saw things like this. Mm -hmm. And so um, this idea that this period in our country is 
water under the bridge. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a whole long time ago. We don't need to talk about it in schools anymore. We can get to those Let's books. move on. <laughs> Why can't we just move on? Well, it's right. really mm-hmm. hard to, to, to move on. Right. Um, That's what people say. Why can't we just move on? You know, get past it. Yeah. Yeah. Get over it. Um, well, it's really hard to get over it when you realize that it's not just Matthew Williams who lost his life, his humanity that day. It's an entire community that saw what happened to him, that was spoken to, treated to, subjected to what that mob did. Then, of course, there's no justice after the fact. Mm-hmm. Nope. And so what, the, what, the, what that system of terror did was send a, a physical and a violent message, of course, but also a psychological message to Black right. people. We right. own you. We control you. And no matter what we do to you, your spirit, or your body, there is not a damn thing you can do about it. No one will be held accountable. We'll do it on the courthouse lawn. We'll never do it in your neighborhood. We'll do it on your porch. And there will be nothing you can do about it. Mm. You you will need to wonder every day if you might meet that same fate. And do your best as the goalposts keep moving to survive. And what that does to you... um, I don't think you need to go to medical school to, to know. Yeah. Um, when you're told you're worthless, I mean, James Baldwin talked about this. The worst part of that is when people start believing it and are complicit in that lie, you know, and what that does to you, which leads to, as we were talking about, shame and, you know, all kinds of horrible things. How did Crownsville evolve over the years? It it. There was a point in time where they got their first black professional in there, right? What, what, yeah. what was what was happening during that time? Yeah, this is this is probably my favorite period of the book. It's in mm-hmm. the late '40s into the '50s, and uh, the war has changed everything, and the hospital has been through the ringer. And they've lost resources. At one point during uh, World War II. The hospital had something like about a dozen staff members working for about thousand something patients Mm -hmm. Uh, for weeks. They had gone without having access to soap because so many basic supplies had become unavailable. Um, And so really the hospital has been like hell on earth. And the guy who's been running the hospital for so many years, this white doctor named Dr. Robert Winterode, the guy who had created Mm -hmm. this whole plantation structure and so loved that, that power structure in the institution he starts to kind of fade from view and, and plot his exit. Mm-hmm. And uh, a Jewish man who has just narrowly escaped the Holocaust, escaped the Nazis himself, he arrives and he takes over the institution from this guy. Uh, and he pretty quickly starts to see Crownsville for exactly what it is. Uh, and he sees the broader system of segregation and apartheid in, in this country for what it is, because mm-hmm. he's just survived it. Um, and so he makes this pretty quick move to integrate the hospital, to find some early black employees to come in and to start changing the culture. And the first man to come is a, a man named Vernon Sparks, who uh, is a psychologist who is uh, the first person, the first black person to get to step foot into the all white employee dining hall. Uh, and he uh, really has to take on this kind of mythic level of grace and patience. Right, right, right. And uh, he comes into this place. And what's so fascinating about Vernon and then a whole number of people who follow Vernon, both as doctors and then as some of the first aides and nurses. Again, many of them are still alive and I've had the, the honor of spending time with them. Uh, you know, they've been sent all these messages for years. You know, black people aren't capable. You're not qualified. You don't deserve these jobs. Right. And they come into Crownsville and their jaws drop, not just because they see how the patients have been treated and and how poorly and and how filthy this place has been running. But they also find that their colleagues, uh, in some cases, can't read and write, uh, that many of them have fabricated or lied about their level of education. So many of them are not actual nurses at all. Many of them are addicted to meth uh, and are operating and working and walking around this and driving around this institution while visibly high, uh, maybe arguably themselves needing inpatient treatment at a, at some sort of facility. Mm. Um, and so 
they are, are starting to have trouble figuring out, well, who's actually, who, who, who's sick and who's well here? <laughs> who are the sick ones, right? And there was sexual abuse going on and those types of things, yeah. All of that. And so this idea that the black people had been unqualified and unwell, right, 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 and the right. white people had had it all figured out becomes very quickly, immediately, uh, uh, it becomes clear that that's all been a lie. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a power struggle really ensues where there is, these old uh, white employees who've been there for all the good old days and the original right. structure who kind of could do no wrong um, because it was always their word versus the patients. And then there's a new generation of black employees, many of whom are just in their twenties. I mean, these are really young people coming mm. in to the hospital, getting mm-hmm. their very first jobs. Um, and they know these patients, not just on some surface level diversity type stuff, yeah. I mean, they went to church with them. They wow. rode the bus to school with them. Yeah. Or they're their own cousins. I mean, some of them are, are literally related to patients. They come in and they're like, okay, I, I, this is my, you know. <laughs> and generations of them have these connections. Not just a couple of them, a whole lot of them. And so um, they end up in this really fascinating power struggle. Um, and they end up in this very morally gray area where every day they're coming to work, having to make these difficult choices about serving the community that they love. Mm-hmm. Of course, wanting to build the careers and, and feed their own families and, and have a job and have opportunities, which were few and far between at that time for so yeah. many black professionals. Um, but also knowing that they were working alongside um, white people who they frankly despised and who they knew didn't see them as, as human. And um, that wears on them, too. So the employees themselves are in many ways emotionally suffering through this experience of trying to take care of their own community's emotional suffering. Um, And so, you know, so many of them end up working at this place for 40, 50 years, um, dedicating their entire lives to just doing what they can every day to get one more patient out of there, to connect their cousin to a clinic so they can go back home to... You know, in the case of patients like the person I mentioned who's brought for cutting someone off in traffic, just get them out and, and back into right. into the lives that they deserve. Reclaim their life. Yeah. Exactly. And and it's not some medication or some technology that arrives that assists them in doing this. It's just the fact that they love and care about and see their own neighbors as as people deserving of good health care, mm-hmm. um, that they're able to make these changes. And so there's this moment, too, where more and more white people start leaving the institution because they don't want to work with these black people. <laughs> yeah. And, and so this weird thing happens where Crownsville actually starts to look like a community hospital, like all black doctors and nurses, all black patients. Everybody knows each other's mama and the church that they go to. Wow. You know, their, their lives, their social lives are intermixed. I mean, I spoke to employees who were like, you know, the way I knew I had done my job right was that I would go to the bars that I liked or the jazz clubs and I'd see my patients there because they got out. That's <laughs> and, hilarious. Wow. You know, that's 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 how they knew they were doing good. And when you think about that and you look at like our healthcare system now and you realize well, we don't really have anything like that. Right. A stake in it like that. Yeah. yeah. If, if I wanted to get any kind of healthcare, put mental healthcare to the side, just any kind, I do yeah. not know a hospital where I could be guaranteed to be taken care of by entirely black people yeah all of whom like know my life and my context and my culture uh who probably have my mom or my grandma's phone number you know right there is nowhere we can get healthcare like that now or at the least for somebody to take your pain seriously which why is that such a big problem with not just mental health care but um and especially with black women of their pain being taken seriously well, if you talk to black doctors and clinicians, they'll tell you that it has a connection to all that stuff we were talking about, about the doctors <laughs> who are writing their theories about black people and designing yeah. these medical schools and these programs. Mm-hmm. When we see surveys now that show that there are medical students, majorities that still will say that they think black patients need less pain medication mm. or that, uh, <sighs> you find that they, they treat black women differently while they're pregnant or complaining of certain um, symptoms. Uh, that this comes from the 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 founding of this system and the early attitudes of the mm-hmm. people who who created um, not just the hospitals but also the education system and, and all of the structures around healthcare in our country. They would say it's not a coincidence, and 
every era has to build upon the era that came before it. Right. And so that's why you, you, we don't really get the privilege in this country of being able to say that what happened a hundred years ago doesn't matter anymore. We don't need to talk about it anymore because we actually cannot understand our current context. We cannot solve things like the maternal health crisis in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, we won't be able to figure out, oh, why is it that we only have about 2% of our psychiatrists are black? Why do black people feel so excluded from this place? Why do they struggle to find therapists? Why is it so hard? Well, you can't actually answer that question without going back first. Take a look at what we did, the choices we made, the system we built. And um, if if any of these people ever get serious about trying to do better by us, they're going to have to reckon with all of that. Mm-hmm. And that, that's not just my personal feeling. I mean, Black doctors and people who study the current mental health care crisis, who I, I spend a lot of time talking to one uh, Black psychiatrist named uh, Dr. Tammy Benton, who's um, you know, uh, a leader in her field and works with a population of black children in Philadelphia. And, um, you know, they've been screaming from the rooftops for years, trying to get people to listen to what they have to say about what's happening to kids of color when they interact with the system. They mm-hmm. just can't always get everyone to listen to them. It's like when you hear those stories, like uh, kids in school or how the black kids are punished, <laughs> you know, in these outrageous ways. And, you know, it's like a microcosm of some of the stories you talk about that happened 120 years ago and that kind of stuff. And you see that happening today or the the kid who was stopped by the police and he had the medical issues and they gave him that, uh, those drugs or whatever and killed him. And he was telling them he was a good kid. And, you know, he may have had some uh, learning disabilities or I don't know what you would call it. He may have been on the spectrum or something, you know, but that was... To me, that was such a visceral example. You're talking about Elijah McLean, right? Yeah, yeah. I couldn't remember his name. That story, I mean, my son has Asperger's, you know, and when I saw that story, oh, God, my heart just leapt out of my chest just thinking, the kid's just expressing himself. He's just he's just being himself, you know, the way he was, I was imagining him, the way he might have been walking down that street. He's a suspect to them, which is crazy. And he's just being a kid, you know. And then he, he looked like he weighed all of, what, 100 pounds? Yeah, exactly. Who's he a threat to, exactly? Yeah, I tell the story at one point in the, in the when we get deeper into the book in the 80s, um, and the hospital really is this all-black place um, of a six-year-old boy who gets brought to Crownsville. And yeah. the, uh, a doctor named Dr. Brian Sims is on duty at the time, and he sees this cop car pull up. And a six-year-old boy in a karate uniform gets dragged <laughs> out of the car by about five, six cops. And immediately he knew something was wrong. You know, it was very clear this boy had just come from karate class. And the cops tell him, oh, he's been belligerent and misbehaving. And, and you know, we, the, the judge decided, you know, he needs to come to Crown, so clearly something's mentally wrong with him. This is in the 80s. Mm-hmm. In the 80s, you know, um, Whenever I think about that story, and I think about that six-year-old a lot, like I just have this image in my mind of what the doctor described to me, just a very small boy, you know, not a big boy, not mm-hmm. taller than the most six-year-olds or, uh, you know, so the kind of kid who could be mistaken for a teenager or something. This is a kindergarten-age child in a mm-hmm. karate uniform who apparently misbehaved in his class and then gets arrested and brought to an adult asylum by police officers in Maryland. Unbelievable. It tells you a lot about how people look at black children. Any right. black child who's, I guess, behaving, uh, misbehaving or making a mistake or uh, not emotionally regulating in the way people might like them to. Um, and that they don't get grace. They don't get second chances. They don't get, um, mm-hmm. you know, a phone call to mom that, that, that this would be the first stop. And the good news is the doctors were able to get him out of there and reconnect him with his family. And they get on the phone and kind of explain to the judge, this is not appropriate. This is not the right place to send a child. What are you doing here? But that's kind of what they're battling up against at that time. And this is all very interconnected because all of these hospitals, they've been closed down. And I think often people will tell you that as a win. We shut down the old asylum model. Uh, You know, they, they all had so many problems and abuses and this terrible history. And there's a lot of truth to that. Um, but the problem is, for most Americans, we didn't really build much to replace that system. We right. never got community mental health care centers we were promised. We never got clinics. Uh, there weren't all the programs to support people to get through medical school and all these difficult and prestigious programs. Um, and so what ends up happening, especially to Black Americans, is that 
they're shifted from the asylum and they're pushed into places like prisons and jails. And right. we're all living with the consequences of that. When did Crownsville close? It closes in 2004. Mm-hmm. But from the 80s to the 2000s, it's kind of limping every year to the finish line. Like they're yeah. fighting for their survival. They're struggling. Uh, they're losing funding year after year. Just the, the lawmakers in Maryland are slashing their resources and telling them that they need to create better outcomes with less. And, it, and it's interesting how the moment it becomes a, a black only institution. There were more allies in Crownsville <laughs> at the moment when it was dying, I guess. Right. It was right. So it becomes yeah. kind of a, a black community hospital for the first time. Right. But then the goalposts move again. That's right. one of the things that I look at a lot in the book is how goalposts move on black people, yeah. like both socially and, and literally. So, you know, they get this opportunity to finally integrate and be doctors and be administrators. Right. And then now they're being told you need to uh, improve outcomes while we also give you less money. You need to make miracles happen with nothing. Uh, yeah. We want to see you get your patient numbers down, but also we're going to let judges send kids to the hospital every week you know none of it's making sense they're all working in, a, in kind of impossible circumstances um and so the hospital closes and and it's a, a really heartbreaking and strange and and um mm-hmm. frightening moment because the message to the patients is yeah you're going to leave the asylum and go back to the community but the people who actually know the patients and work with them know that for so many poor black americans there isn't a whole lot of infrastructure community yeah to go back to. There is no doctor and clinic waiting for them to help them on their their journey to getting whole again. They're going to be left alone. And and that's what we find happens. Yeah, it's almost like the irony of segregation and desegregation. You know, as bad as segregation was, the the heroes of segregation were all the black businesses that, you know, that were started and the way that money was shared in the black community and you yeah. know, my father uh, my parents are from Chicago, from that area. And, you know, if you need a lawyer, you went to a black lawyer. Dentist, you went to a black dentist. You know, all these things. Because you had to. You had no choice, you know. But those those businesses were thriving. And one of the fallouts of integration, as noble as it was and important, of course, is a lot of that infrastructure that kept those communities vibrant in some ways kind of fell away. Yeah, so one of my family the other day was like, Sometimes I wonder if we spent too much time thinking about the separate and not enough about the unequal. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very nice. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. There's heroes and villains and all of these stories, you know, and pluses and minuses. Is there, what, is there any, does this book give you, or the process of even doing this book, give you insight into any types of solutions for the future, especially when we're talking about the the poor communities, people without resources, what we're really talking about. Because I think if uh, a lot of race these days, sometimes you have to acknowledge class, I think, in these conversations yeah. too. Because I think in, I'll call it the educated class, not middle, upper, or lower, but in, in more of the educated class, people are accepting, I think, therapy a lot more now. Black mental health is starting to be taken more seriously in some aspects. And ironically, generationally, it is still being resisted in some ways, you know. What's the way forward to having this be more of a, both an accepted thing and an accessible thing? Well, the solutions on the accessibility side, they're not rocket science. Although you would think when you look at our political environment and you listen to our leaders that it's like the greatest mystery in the universe. Um, Mm -hmm. There seems to be nothing we can do about (laughs) mental health. Nothing we can do about how many people get shot in public all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, that we should all just throw our hands up and accept it. But when you talk to people who actually not only work with patients day to day right now, um, but also people who saw what the system was like in an earlier period before Mm. we, you know, what we have right now, um, they said there's a couple very obvious and not that expensive things that we could, all support or start doing or start demanding our, our leaders take more seriously. Mm-hmm. The first is that, uh, especially in black communities, things like access to green space, safe parks, safe sh- social spaces where there is not surveillance of children. That doesn't mean no parents or adults, but not, uh, you know, uh, police officers and a whole sort of uh, ap- carceral apparatus around children 
making it very difficult for them to make mistakes or experiment or try things and or fail. Um, So creating community centers that are actually appealing and safe and fun for kids. And safe and safe from crime, too, from maybe gang influence or that sort of thing. Exactly. Um, Funding your public schools. These are things that have huge uh, protective uh, abilities. They are protective factors. So what doctors mean by that is, you know, these are the things that prevent children from developing mental illness ever in the first place, mm-hmm. um, which is which should be a large part of a public health goal, especially mm-hmm. coming out of the pandemic. Um, the other piece of that is that, uh, according to doctors like Dr. Timmy Benton, research shows that children of color, so not just black children, but Asian American children, Hispanic children, uh, Native American children, that for children of color, knowing about your history and your context in this country is another major protective factor. Mm. Children who do not know about where they come from, why they matter, who their ancestors were, the good, the bad, and all of what's in between, Mm -hmm. that those children are much more likely to suffer from things like depression and anxiety. And that's because of all the messaging uh, that this country and and our media can sometimes send to those kids. So one of the most important protective things that parents can do, that educators can do, is give your kids books and talk about who you are and where you come from and, and make your kid feel like they matter. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's not rocket science. And those things are not very expensive. It's a whole lot more expensive, for example, to build a new juvenile justice facility or a new prison in your neighborhood than it would be to fund your park and to fund your public schools. Um, and so these are choices. When you talk to doctors, you find that these are choices that we've made. They're not just casual coincidences, which is what some people wouldn't want you to believe or have you believe. Um, there are things that we decided at some point we would do. And the good news about that is that you can change your decisions. You can undo choices. Um, but it does take a, a kind of a new framework around um, community care, around uh what we want to spend our money on about how we hold our politicians accountable in order to do that. Um, And then, you know, there are a number of programs, uh, efforts to bring more people of color into medical schools, uh, whether that's forgiving debt and just making it affordable to, to become these kinds of professionals, those that can play a major role in it, especially in fields like psychiatry, where we're still talking two to 4%. I mean, and parts wow. of the country where if you are black, you simply are just not going to find a black psychiatrist or therapist because they don't exist. They're not there. Uh, you can be here in New York City. People are on months long waiting lists to see any kind of psychiatrist. Never mind if you are someone who has a language barrier and might need someone who speaks Spanish. Your personal suffering comes from a place that would require your your clinician have a, a some kind of cultural competency or racial context. So you're going to be on an even longer waiting list because those professionals are really struggling to serve their patient populations right now. And none of those things are unsolvable. Um, And a lot of what makes a difference for patient outcomes, and you'll see this in the book too, in the stories of patients who actually do make recoveries at Crownsville. When they tell their stories, they don't remember the medication name that they were put on. What they do remember are that uh, the people who had their back who forgave them, who showed them unconditional support mm-hmm. uh, and patience. And they do remember people who reminded them every day out on the wards that they were worthy, that this was just a small part of their story, that they still had so much more to give and to do and to accomplish. And the patients who are successful had community. They had support. The right. patients who were not successful did not. And so um, right now we spend a lot of time thinking about the pharmaceutical side of things, about the medication, right. about symptoms, about new drugs and developments. But without the community piece, most of the experts who work in the space think we're just kind of um, it's like we're on a hamster wheel. We're not really getting anywhere because the, the drugs just, you know, as revolutionary as some of them may be to me, all they're doing is dressing the symptoms. You know, they're not yeah. really going after the causes, but community to me solves so many things. And it's, you know, in so many areas, not just the black community, but I feel like so many local communities are just being broken down all over the place. You know, when I just look at things, not to be Mr. Doom and Gloom, but, but it is where a lot of things can be accomplished by a group of people with a shared vision about, yeah. you know, 
wanting their place that they live to be nice or good for their children or have good schools or all these things, you know, so important in yeah. like, acknowledging people and all those sorts of things. But who am I? Who am I to say these things are good? You know, you know you're on to something. If you <laughs> I, I'm telling you, it's like every time I would call one of these doctors, it would be like, oh, I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you about this because <laughs> my research shows something so simple and we right. can do this tomorrow if we wanted to do it. And so, you know, for people who care about these things, or maybe you have a loved one in your own life who's struggling, mm -hmm. there are some small things we could all do just on our own tomorrow. You know, being a person to a child, so that could be your own child or your niece or your nephew or just your best friend's kid. Mm -hmm. Being an adult who that kid trust that's a, mm. that makes a huge difference yeah. um one of the major patterns that that clinicians find is that a lot of kids who end up in crisis mode they don't feel like they have any adults in their lives so they could call and really tell what's going wow. on at school wow. really tell what how they feel what really tell what mistake they made yeah uh, what situation they got themselves into uh, because they don't really trust adults around them or they are worried about being judged or, or cast aside or or whatever it might be. And so to be an adult for a child right now, again, especially after the pandemic and all that kids have just gone through, mm -hmm. to be a person who kids trust and would call if they needed someone to, to help them out or just to listen to them or to have their back, um, that's not a small thing. And that, and we, we can't just put it all on us and say, oh, all of us can just take these individual steps and that's going to make the fact that we have all these systemic failures fine. No, it, it's not. But if you do care about these things and you want to feel like you did something mm -hmm. while we wait for everyone else to get their <laughs> right, shit right. together, frankly, um, you can just try to be that person for someone else. That's, That's the great. other piece of advice that I give for people. That's the other lesson that I learned from so many of the nurses and, and staff at Crownsville. These black men and women, they came to this impossible job every day. They yeah. worked beyond the hours they were paid and they got results not because uh, the state gave them funding and, and really backed their programs and got them the best of what was available, but just because they really tried to have their patients' backs and tell this very vulnerable group of patients that they were loved, that they were worthy of something greater. And that message um, does a whole lot to protect people's well-being. Um, mm -hmm. And it means more than most people know. Mm. So important. So important. Use, use important. <laughs> use somebody. <laughs> uh, Antonio, thank you so much. Sorry to do another joke. Uh, it's such a fascinating, uh, just journey, this book. Fascinating journey. Uh, thank you. That everyone should know about the book. Everybody is madness, uh, race and insanity in a Jim Crow asylum. Antonio Hilton. It's, it's not only, um, very amazing research, as I was pointing out, some of the details in that. But you're such a great storyteller, too. I got to give you props for that. You know, even just listening you. to you talk about it, just a really great storyteller. And and I thought it was really, it was moving, including your family and your personal journey in this book, too. I was really moved by that. Thank you. That means the world to me, especially coming from you. Um, so thank you. And um yeah, I, I I I try to just speak about this story, about this work from a very personal place. I, I wanted mm -hmm. to be upfront with my readers. You're That's going right. on a journey with me, and I'm not going to lie to you. I didn't stumble upon this like a journalist who just found out about a cool scoop. Yeah. It, it, it comes from this very personal place, um, and also a hopeful place, a, mm -hmm. a, a belief that if we deal with all this and we understand it better, we actually can do something about it. That's important, you guys. Hopeful, 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 hopeful. There, yeah. There's a lot of like harsh realities in here, but hopeful can come out of this, the madness. There is a way to come together in here. That's why I love that you talked about community. Antonia Hilton, you guys, Madness is the book. Remember, I don't steer you guys wrong when I tell you what to read. This is one of them. Thank you so much, Antonia. Thank you, Larry.